Well, this is uh, Dr. Chuck Mateer. I just have uh, so much respect for Chuck and Karen. And I said this in the last service, you know, Chuck is a Christian in the truest sense of the word. Uh, someone who really seeks to become like him. I've, I just had to, just the privilege to get to know him over the last uh, 10 years. He's spoken into my life. Um, very patiently has endured my strange questions <laughs> on a regular basis. Uh, Chuck has been here for, him, him and Karen have been here for about uh, a little bit over 10 years. Uh, Chuck is part of the leadership team of the International House of Prayer University and also one of our professors there. Uh, over the years, on several occasions, he's been the, the basically voted the favorite teacher of all of our students. And uh, there, there you go. And uh, he truly is an excellent teacher. Uh, also, just his history in the Lord, just coming from the Jesus Movement and Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard, I just really believe that he's just such a gift to be in, in our midst for, for such a time as this. And uh, so, but before I pray for you, I'd like for you to kind of speak of your own awesomeness, which I, um, <laughs> I'm from Southern California. And um, anybody else from there? <clears throat> uh, 50 years in, in California and uh, was a Calvary Chapel pastor, a vineyard pastor, professor at um, Fuller Seminary. That's all, the biggest thing, though, is I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's what's important. So, yeah. So has grace made you awesome? <laughs> Let's get into the sermon. Yeah, that's <laughs> Yeah. No, uh, he, he just shared an excellent word on hearing the Lord in the midst of chaos. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's such a fitting word. Again, just for the times in which we're living. You know, we just had a, a one-year season of just tremendous pressure, and it really is only the beginning. And so I really believe that he just brings a word that will really help us know how to carry and how to steward our hearts before the Lord and how to hear his voice in the midst of all that. Chuck, again, I'm just so, I'm truly am grateful for you. I just want to take a moment and pray for you. Father, thank you, Lord, for Chuck. Father, thank you, Lord, for Karen. Lord, for the deposit of you, Lord, that you have uh, invested in them. But even for such a time as this, and Father, this morning, Lord, we, we want to draw, Lord, from that history. Father, we ask you, Lord, that you would release a spirit of revelation, Lord, in this room, Lord, that we would hear the things you have to say. Father, I ask you, Lord, that your hand would rest upon Chuck in an increased manner. Lord, that you would put your words in his mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Stuart. As Stuart mentioned, I would like to speak this morning on hearing from God amidst the chaos of the 2020s and beyond that, and I'd like to start with a question to ask each of you. Have you ever been so anxious, so worried, so burdened and frightened that you found it next to impossible to rivet your attention and focus on your prayer? But rather, what happens is that we kind of... Um, the focus degenerates from the focus on prayer to obsessing over whatever concern there is that, that's burdening our heart. Now, I'm in that boat. I don't know if anybody else has ever 
felt that. Is anybody here tracking with me? Okay. And it's common to humankind. Jesus recognized this. He, he said in Mark chapter 4, he said, the worries of the world, and there's never a time when we don't have worries. Every one of you right now has worries, plenty of them. But he said, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, can we make it? Can we get by? Am I going to survive? And the desire for other things come in and choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And he's, he's basically conveying the idea that through the word of God, God communicates. But because of the anxiety, the worry, the deception, all these distractions can choke it out, and so I cannot hear God. And there's people are afraid of getting fired, of getting let go. Maybe you have been fired. The burden is so great when you begin to pray about it, you default back to the concern. Even though words are still coming out of your mouth, you're totally consumed with the anxiety of it. It could be financial issues. And there's a whole slew of possible scenarios with financial need. It could be relationships, marital, just romantic relationships, familial relationships that are so difficult and so anxiety-provoking that when we start to pray about it, we default to the concern and our mind and emotion is caught up in that rather than <clears throat> focus on the prayer itself. Illness, a sick child, an injustice done to us. This is a big one for me. He did me wrong. <clears throat> and I know I'm supposed to pray about it, and you start, I start to pray about it, but I default back to he did me wrong. And it's next to impossible to have the proper focus when praying. But now imagine what's going to happen when all the chaos and trauma that will face us near the end of the age and in the 2020s. And that just how that is going to challenge us to keep our focus on the Lord when we pray. It's, it's a step or two or three above, you know, my dog Sparky has a bad paw. And it, the, the concerns are going to be a lot greater than that. And it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And Jesus refers to this in Luke chapter 21 in very stark terms. I, I quote to you from verse 25, 26. There'll be signs in the sun and moon and stars. Well, oh, I don't want that. I want status quo. And on the earth, dismay among the nations. So he's not just talking to Jewish people here. He's talking out toward the end among the nations. Dismay, heaviness from what's going on. Perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear. And the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. These are cataclysmic things that he's talking about. Wars that are unbelievable in our imagination, above and beyond what we've experienced. Political, religious, 
economic systems changing radically, and we, we can do nothing about it. Famines, persecutions, giant hailstones, earthquakes that are huge. Revelation 16 talks about islands disappearing, mountains no longer there. And when these types of things begin to happen, and we're already feeling uncomfortable with what we're witnessing and experiencing in the world now, but when it's ratcheted up, how hard it is to keep the connection in prayer rather than just saying words and obsessing on the concern. Because of this, I'd like to speak on three things this morning with you. And the first one is I would like to speak on the difficulty, not of prayer, but of the difficulty of connecting with God when we're deeply distressed. The second is the heightened importance of our interior lives in the 2020s. It's gonna be all the more important, what goes on in here. And finally, how to develop this inner relationship with God. And to do so, I'm gonna look at a number of biblical texts with you to try to uh, flesh out these points. And the first text I'm going to go to is in 2 Samuel. You can follow on the screen or you can uh, follow with me. Very interesting passage in 2 Samuel 21, beginning with verse 1. <clears throat> we read, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul, the previous king of Israel, and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. They were Gentiles. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah, tried to wipe them out. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, we have no concern, we have no claim of silver or gold with Saul or of his house, nor is it for us to put any, any person in Israel to death, anybody. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, the man who consumed us, Saul, and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons, Jewish people, be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah. That was, where, that was Saul's hometown, and it was also the capital at that time. The chosen of the Lord, and the king said, I will give them. Incredible passage. Note, if you would, in verse 1. This is a cataclysmically difficult time for the nation of Israel. There's famine in the land, no let up, year after year, three years. Each year it's getting worse. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. People are starving, possible death is going on, uh, poor health among people as they eat worse and worse food. 
And David's right, he, the buck stops with him as king. And he's not, and the people are possibly coming to him. You gotta change things, make a deal with somebody. Uh, do whatever you have to do, but we're dying on the vine here. And I'm sure it was an extremely uh, cataclysmic time for David and the others. A very difficult time to connect with God. You can pray left and right, take the famine away, please end the drought, get rid of the locust, whatever, so we can get food. And I, I need to stop for a moment because some of you are, I, I know human thought. Some of you out there are the yeah buts. And in fact, I'm gonna write a book someday. There's no yeah buts in heaven. Um, and you're going, but we, sh we need to pray. And I wanna make it clear from the get-go here. Pray, pray, pray. Pray in the prayer room, go to the prayer room more. Pray at home when you're making a sandwich. Pray when you're showering. Pray when you're driving. Pray, just pray, pray, pray. Does everybody understand that I'm pushing prayer? Let's say it together. Pray, come on, pray. Okay, so I can have nobody doing this yeah but stuff with me. Okay, so David is, I'm sure, deeply concerned weighted down with the, the suffering of his people and finding it difficult to pray. But that's not what the text says here. If you look in verse one, it says that David sought the, the Hebrew here is panim. And panim is a plural word. It's in uh, another diversion here. A lot of you read New King James. I was raised Missouri Synod Lutheran. Back then, there was no new King James. There wasn't an old King James, there was just King James. And uh, the new King James doesn't quite get it here. In fact, they miss it. Because it's translated in the new King James, David inquired of the Lord. New International gets close, but they use the singular. David sought the face of God, the face of the Lord. But it's plural, and it doesn't convey really what's going on. What's the Hebrew meaning here is face-to-face. -face. It's faces. And David went face-to-face -face with God. And I need to clear this up a little bit. It doesn't just mean, okay, God, I'm talking to you. No. Face is the most intimate thing that you can give another person. And so going face to face with God means he has to humble himself, become honest with where he's at and who he is. And if he's going to portray a false face, a mask, he's not gonna go face to face with God. God will show his face, his true face, but he needs to show his true face to God and have an honest connection with God. That's what's being conveyed here. Not the word for prayer, which is palal. And again, pray, 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 pray. Don't get me wrong. Don't go out of here and say, Chuck's saying, don't pray, just do panim. No, I'm not saying that. 
Can we do that once more? Everybody, pray. let's say pray. Pray. Okay, I'm, just for my safety. Pray. But God himself makes a distinction between palal, prayer, and panim, faces, when he speaks to King Solomon right after David's reign, at the, just after the dedication of the temple, God comes and speaks to uh, Solomon and says this. This comes out of 2 Chronicles 7.14. I think it'll be on the screen for you. And God says, <clears throat> you need to do four things, Solomon, four distinct things. My people who are called by my name, humble themselves. You gotta get honest. You gotta be courageous enough to get honest with who you are when you come before me. And then you need to pray, palal. Pray whatever. And then something different. You need to seek my face. It's plural here, meaning again, you need to go face to face with me. It's distinct from palal. And you need to turn from your wicked ways. You need to repent. You need to do those four things, and we'll get into this verse in a bit. But there is a distinction between petition, intercession, thanksgiving, praise, prayer, and entering into the very presence of God and going face to face with him. And you can't trick the spirit of God. You gotta show your true face. And may I be so bold as to say that we Christians are sinners saved by grace. And we need to get in touch with that, our anxiety, our concern, our fear, our doubt, whatever, and present to him honestly who and what we are for him to show his true self, which he will never do otherwise. So what possibly happened here to David in verse one that he sought the face of the Lord after three years. I offer three scenarios. I don't think the first two are right, but there's gonna be some yeah butters, so I might as well give those two other scenarios and then I'll give you the one I think it is. First scenario is simply this. After three years of intense palal prayer, Take the famine away, bring us rain, get rid of the locusts, drive out the invading armies, stealing all our grain and goods and our cattle. After three years of praying that way, intensely, although it was hard to focus, he finally said, I ain't getting nowhere. I'm just gonna seek the face of God, I give up. This famine is just continuing on. I don't think that's the scenario. The reason is throughout the Psalms, uh, the Psalms attributed to David, we find that David is repeatedly seeking God, not his provision, but God himself. I give you just one example in Psalm 34.4. David said, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. It's a veiled reference to he was concerned about something and he became honest with himself, came before the Lord God, sought him, and God answered him. And uh, I, don't, so consequently, I don't think this first scenario is it. The second scenario, and, and, and I might add with this first scenario, I believe David knew that in the darkest times, the, 
the most important issue is seeking the presence of God, gaining his presence, and not seeking his provision. That's a huge point. And that's why I don't think that this first scenario is what happened. The second scenario is that he actually did attempt to go face to face with God for three years, but he was so stressed with what was going on, he just couldn't do it. It just didn't work. And it's a human condition. We get so burdened by things that we say the right words, we speak properly, but we're nowhere there. We're, we're enmeshed in the emotion and trauma of it all. And did he repeatedly try to do this for three years? I don't think the psalmist, when he wrote those psalms, indicates that that was the case. I think it's the third scenario, I believe it's the third scenario, that David repeatedly over those three years, amidst praying, pray, 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 that he repeatedly made effort to seek the presence of the Lord and go face to face with him. But he received no specific direction for three years concerning the famine. He just kept at it. And we cannot demand from God our answers if we go face to face with him. It would be, uh, it would be something like this. If I'm able to go face to face with my Lord, and I actually get face to face with him, I'm not gonna ask him, why is my elbow always so sore? I just don't think that's gonna be the, the thing that happens. If I go face to face with him, who do you think's going to uh, direct the interaction? It's going to be my maker and not my concern. In fact, I think in that day we will ask him no question will be in the presence of the infinite, almighty God. I am totally honest with him, which is very difficult to do. And he shows himself, and I think for three years there's a possibility that he went face to face with God. But he could have gotten direction in a lot of other things. There could have been times he went face to face, he got no direction whatsoever. He simply was in the presence of God, and that was enough. And he comes out of it and he goes, I got nothing other than I was in God's presence. That's pretty good. But notice that it, took, it would take great courage and perseverance to continue to go into the presence of God and not get direction for what you want direction from. It would be so easy to just please take away the famine. Please bring rain. Please get rid of the locust. That's an easier prayer. But I think that possibly he went for three years and keeping at it was a great challenge because what if he, every time he went face to face, he got something other than direction about the famine and God never answered him that way. Think of Daniel, Daniel 9. Daniel wants to go home. The exile's over, so he starts praying. We want to go home. When can we go home? Gabriel shows up, and, you know, in verses 25, 6, 7, 8, he, Gabriel gives him a panoramic view of the whole history that's going to come concerning Israel. And he, I just wanted to go home. Can you tell me about? But when you're in the presence, spiritual presence, things and perspectives are different. 
So what is so different about panim? And why is it so necessary when calamity and trauma hit, even more necessary than when everything's going well? Well, <laughs> panim involves a critical shift in focus. And it is difficult to gain, and it is difficult to maintain. It's very easy to slip out of it, very easy. It's hard enough to gain it. For when we seek God's face, there is no agenda other than entering into his presence. He is that great that whether your elbow hurts or not or Sparky, your dog, has a bad paw, it does not matter. You're entering into the very presence of God with your true, honest, broken, fearful, anxiety-ridden self. And whatever barriers you put up will be the barriers that hit when God tries to communicate. We have to humble ourselves. And so when we seek his face, there's no agenda but entering his presence. We're striving to be receptive to the presence of God versus voicing our concerns. And with panim, listening and discerning trumps speaking and interceding. Although pray, 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 pray. This takes great faith. This takes perseverance. God is not obligated to answer David the first time around when he enters his presence that, oh, you want to know about the famine. Imagine three years, year after year, you know the guy's praying. I believe he's, he's seeking God's face, going face to face, which is exhausting for three years, and he doesn't give up. And finally, God answers. But in verse one, we also see, if you're gonna go face to face with God, we see why panim is so important back then and why going face to face with God is so important now, and particularly in the 2020s, when things are not necessarily gonna get rosier. I threw in necessarily to not make it sound so harsh but it is not gonna get rosier. Why is it so important? Notice what God says to David. He told David something that David would never have come up with in a million years. David would never have equated something that his predecessor in a previous generation did, and it was because of, and David had nothing to do with it, but because of what Saul did, in a previous generation, God now is acting upon his people in the next generation under the rulership of David. Now you tell me David could have just sat around one day with a, a big straw in his mouth and thinking and meditating and coming up with that. It never would have happened. But when we're in the presence of the Lord, the dynamic's different. And he's communicated this revelation concerning what Saul did to the Gibeonites. And as a little background, in Judges chapter nine, when the children of Israel entered into the promised land and began to take over Jericho, I, A-I, I, and other cities as they moved into the promised land, the Gibeonites, and they lived smack dab in the middle of the promised land. They're going, Hey, our goose is cooked. 
we better do something. Let's fake it with these guys. So they put on, they got a bunch of guys and they put on really old sandals and old dirty clothes and they had crusty old bread and they had these old wine skins that were cracking and all and they acted like they'd come from a distant country. And they come to Joshua and the elders and they say, we've heard about you, how God delivered you from Egypt. And we've seen the, what, what God is doing. We want you to make a peace treaty with us, that you will have peace with us from here on out and we will have peace with you. And without consulting the, the Lord, the elders and Joshua agreed, they made a covenant. And three days later, it was found out, hey, these guys live in the middle of our, our, our land that we're supposed to conquer. And they were upset. And I quote to you a couple of verses. This is Joshua 9, 23, 27. It says that they basically said, you're going to be our slaves from here on out. You're going to be hewers of wood, and you're going to be uh, drawers of water for the house of God. And then in verse 27, you'll be hewers of wood, drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of God. Now, the reference here is to the, Moses' tabernacle and the altar of burnt offering. At this point, during the time of, um, of Joshua, the tabernacle that was out in the wilderness resided in Gibeon. Gibeon's about six, seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. Saul lives in Gibeah, which is about five miles due north of Jerusalem. So Gibeah and Gibeon are really close to each other. And for hundreds of years, and I'm going to give you one more verse. During the time of David, in 1 Chronicles 21:29, it states that the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were in the high place at Gibeon at that time, at David's time. And so during the time of Saul, the tent that was in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering is in Gibeon. The Gibeonites are, are preparing water for the priests. They're cutting wood for the altar of burnt offering. And David, in an unrighteous zeal, most likely, and he's two, three miles away from Gibeon, he goes, these are goyim. These are Gentiles. And they're ministering at our, at our uh, tabernacle and at the altar of burnt offering. And he begins to kill them off. We find that in verse 1. Verse 5, he planned to exterminate us. Uh, verse 2, Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel in Judah. And God's going, you can't do that. You guys made a covenant with them. And God said, this is a bloody house. You did wrong in killing off these Gibeonites. You did not do right. Because of it, you're going to pay. Now notice, and this is what we need in the 2020s. Notice this horrible communication that God gives David when he's face to face with God. David is so convinced of what God is saying, that he goes to the Gibeonites and he tells them, whatever you want, we'll do it. And the Gibeonites end up saying, we want seven of Saul's sons and we're gonna hang them in Gibeah 
which uh, during Saul's time was the capital, and it was also his hometown, and we're going to hang him there. Now, you have to be really convinced that you've heard from God to be willing to give up Jewish people, God's chosen people, to goyim, Gentiles, because they asked for what they wanted. You have to know that you have been in the presence of the Lord and that the Lord really spoke. Now, there's a lot of words going around today, and I'm not trying to downplay them whatsoever, but if any of you ever received a word from the Lord that you would be so convinced of when you were in his very presence that you'd be willing to give up a son or daughter, it's, and I'm not, the yeah butters are going on. Chuck's saying give up your, your son. No, no. But what I am saying is consider the depths of connection that happened between David and God to go through with something like this. He gave up the seven sons. They were hung. Seven Jewish people. And eventually, eventually the family was broken. I contend with you that these panim encounters are increasingly needed in the 2020s. And as things move on and beyond the 2020s as we near the end of time. But how are we to do it amidst all the noise, the chaos out there, and the chaos especially in here? How do we do it? I'd like to look at three passages quickly. The first one is in Psalm 46, very well-known psalm, written, it's attributed to uh, uh, Korah, but notice in verse 10 that it says in your new King James, which I love, it says, be still. That it doesn't mean don't move, it simply means inside, get still inside, which is hard to do when there's catastrophe going on. The, uh, the, the Hebrew word rafa can also mean, and it's picked up in, in the New American Standard, cease striving. Just cease striving. Another way to translate it is let go. Let go of the noise. Let go of the emotion. Let go of how you're going to deal with this thing. Let go of the panic, because things are really bad. Uh, and no. Yada is the Hebrew here. Know that I'm God. You need to get still and let go to go face to face with me and know that I'm God. But consider the context in this chapter. Uh, Mike has been very excellent in bringing out in his Seabats uh, classes all the... Uh, end time psalms, and this is one of them. The message is for the end times. If you look at verse 2 in, in Psalm 46, therefore we will not fear though the earth should change, earthquakes, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, hasn't happened yet. Verse uh, uh, 5 and 6, the Lord is in the midst of her, God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made a roar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. Uh, this is an eschatological psalm. 
And it's pointing to the end of time. It's it had application then, but it has application now. And it's essentially saying when things go crazy, when islands disappear, the heavens, there's signs in the heavens which we can't imagine. Be still. Get quiet. Cease striving. Let go. And that way you can know who I am because you need to communicate with me and I need to communicate with you when things get rough. <laughs> Excuse me. The second passage I'd like to look at is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 concerning <clears throat> King Jehoshaphat who lived about 130, 40, 50 years after David, good king of Judah. Good old jumping Jehoshaphat. And in chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, this gigantic army comes against Judah. And, it's, and I, I read with you, <clears throat> it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, which is Syria, and beyond. They are in Hazazan Tamar, that is in Engedi, down by the Dead Sea. And notice it says, King Jehoshaphat was afraid. Can I just talk turkey with you guys for a moment? Cop, 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 no. Um, <clears throat> personally, personally, I get a little tired of hearing from Christians who say, I don't fear when that stuff comes, I'm trusting in the Lord, blah, blah, blah. The human condition is that when things get extremely chaotic, cataclysmic, our self-defense <clears throat> mechanism kicks in, fright, anxiety. I challenge somebody to go up in the Rockies, meet a grizzly, and not get afraid on a trail. You're going to panic. Do I run? Do I stay? He's faster than me. What do I do? And it's the human condition, and King Jehoshaphat is afraid. Now, yes, Scripture says, be not afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. Great. And that's exactly right. And that's what we should do is have no fear. But humans get afraid. I get afraid. Does anybody in here get afraid? <clears throat> and it can interfere with connecting with God, let alone putting our mind on the prayer rather than obsessing on the concern. And so it says he was afraid and turned his attention to Panim. Seek the Lord. Yes, pray, but he turned his attention to Panim and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And all Judah came. All of Judah came. They stood before Jehoshaphat. And at the end of his prayer, he prays this in verse 12. O oh, our God, you will, will you not judge them? We're powerless over this great multitude who are coming against us nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Very difficult to do. 
He's in, in essence, he's saying <clears throat> in praying before the whole congregation, we're done. We don't have what it takes to defeat this army. And even if we did have the big enough bullets <clears throat> or arrows back then and spears, even if we did have the power to deal with it, we don't know what to do. And in the midst of very dire straits, he says, but our eyes are on you. And the reference has already been, he made effort to connect and seek the Lord, Panim. And then the, <clears throat> excuse me. For those of you who are really into Second Chronicles, you've probably passed off this verse quickly before. But in verse 13, right after the end of the prayer, it's a very strong Hebrew verse. And says, all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Well, what are you putting that in there for? You all came, you're praying with the guy. What, why do you, it's indicating that they're standing waiting. And suddenly, the Spirit of God comes down upon someone who is not known as a prophet. He's not described as a prophet, Jehaziel. And Jehaziel has the Spirit come on him in the midst of, of the presence of the Lord being there. And in that midst, he says something again from the Spirit of God, which they never would have come up with before. He speaks and says, here's where that army is. Here's how they're coming down through the ascent of Ziz. Tomorrow they're going to be right here. Tomorrow morning, go out and meet them. But stand there and see the salvation of the Lord. We, uh, the Lord doesn't want you to do a thing. Now, you tell me a couple things here. They never would have come up with that on their own. We'll just go out and meet him tomorrow morning. Just stand around and, and see what happens. They never in a million years would have come up with that. God, we need to hear from God. Now, the second thing I pose to you is this guy isn't known, he's not mentioned elsewhere, could have been a prophet, maybe he's not, but he's in the midst of this large throng and he says these words. Why would they believe him? Hey, everybody, let's just go out tomorrow, this is where they're gonna be, and let's just go out and meet them. Why would they just go, well, let's just do that? I pose to you, could be wrong, but I pose to you that this group was in connection with the Almighty. And they sensed that what was being spoken was from God. And again, they did what they never would have imagined doing in a million years. They go out the next morning, they stand out there in front of them, and they begin to sing praise songs. But God turns these armies against each other and kills them off, and they're free. Again, panim is needed in catastrophic times. And then finally, in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14, I've already referenced it, but put it in a little more context. When Solomon, when the temple had been dedicated, God comes to Solomon and speaks to him privately. And I quote to you 2 Chronicles 7, 13, 14. Notice again the combining of catastrophe and panim. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, 
or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name get real. You have to show your true face before the Lord if he's gonna show his face. And pray, palal, pray, 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 pray. And panim, seek my face, distinctly different. And repent, turn from your wicked way. Then I'll hear from heaven, forgive your sins and heal your land. So if drought occurs, if there's famine, if your crops are stripped, if pestilence comes, notice the combining of humility, repentance, stillness within, and panim, that they go together when things get really, really rough. And this inner trajectory of humbling oneself, repentance, being real before God, which is extremely challenging to do, humility, uh, we reach the presence of the Lord because Jesus Christ resides at the center of your being and my being, which is our spirits. And the New Testament is replete with references to where Jesus, that Jesus resides within us. I quote to you just a, a couple of them. There's tons of them, but uh, John 17, 23, I in them, Jesus said. Colossians 1, 27, Christ in you. He's in me. Romans 8, 10, if Christ is in you. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ, but Christ lives in me. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you? Now, that's great. Okay, he's in me. But it's kind of like, you know, the old, where's Waldo? On the pay, where's Waldo? Well, where's Jesus? Is he in my elbow? Okay, he's in me, granted. Bible says so. Is he in my left earlobe? Is he in my kneecap? Where's Jesus? Well, Scripture tells us exactly where he is. Ephesians 3, 16, 17. I quote to you <clears throat> that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. So now we know where he is. He's in my spirit. If I'm a Christian, Jesus Christ comes and at the depths of my being, that's where he's residing. And if I'm to connect with him, I need to connect spirit to spirit. Jesus said God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You gotta be honest. You can't put a mask in front of yourself. And I think we have the formula now for how do we face things in the near future. We meet our maker and connect with him face to face in our spirits. So, and I'd like to call Chris and the team up at this point, but to get to and to encounter Jesus face to face when things get worse for us, we need to pass through our brokenness, our hurts, our fears, to humble ourselves, repent of sin, and go face to face with our maker. How can we do this when things are tumultuous? How does that happen? Three things. 
Number one, each of us must face ourselves courageously. That's a big order. Honestly, that's just as big an order. And patiently, if we're to enter into his presence, we have to wait to become honest with ourselves and we have to wait on God. We're not good at waiting. We're good at talking, blabbing, all sorts of stuff. We're good at reading the Bible. We're good at pray, 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 pray. But are we good at waiting? This type of waiting is not waiting while you make a sandwich. It's definitely not waiting while you drive. You want the presence of the God to come and you be face to face with God while you're driving on the 71 here? I don't think so. So we have a hint that it happens when that's all you're doing. Now, yes, you can pray while you make a sandwich. Please do. You should pray while you make a sandwich. But we have to wait and wait and wait and wait to get honest with ourselves and have the courage to go face to face with our maker who may only show us his presence. And should I even use the word only? Secondly, while we wait, we must let go of our distractions and our concerns. We need to get still, stop striving, let go in order for us to know God. And finally, while we're quieting down, there is so much noise inside of us. There's a lot of noise and chaos out there, but most of the noise is here. And while we quiet down, we have to change our focus from speaking to listening and saying nothing and simply being before him. I say this in conclusion. I believe that many of us are spiritually lonely. We're prayer warriors, we pray a lot, we intercede a lot, we petition a lot, we give a lot of thanksgiving, we sing a lot of praise songs, but we're not connecting. And if we do connect, it's for very short little snippets because we're so busy. And are we willing to put the time in and exert the courage and the humility as things get rougher in the 2020s, are we willing to pray and to seek his very presence? That's what's gonna cause us to survive and thrive as things get close to the end. And I would like to make a challenge, an invitation that you think very carefully over. Is this something that you need to do? Are you lonely spiritually? You throw yourself around people, but spiritually, you're lonely. You pray a lot, you praise a lot, but the connection that is needed is not there, let alone direction that you might need. If that's the case, are you willing to consecrate yourself and make a commitment to trying step by step to develop this area of panim seeking his presence in your life. And I would ask as we all stand now, I'll close in prayer, but as we do, if you want to make that commitment, and anybody else, if you need healing for your body, just direction for something, come forward. 
But I would invite you to come forward and stand and receive prayer as you consecrate yourself to this very wonderful but very challenging element of connecting panimwise with God. Father, may your spirit fall upon your people now. Beyond good intentions, I pray you would work resolve in us. We need connection with, we need to be face to face with you. We will continue our prayers. We will continue to intercede and petition. But Lord, help us. We're so frightened so easily with stuff going on outside of us and the stuff we don't want to face going on inside of us. Help us to be still and to know that you are God. Please come forward. Please make that commitment, this challenge that the Spirit is giving this morning. I'd ask the ministry team to come forward, that you would pray, lay your hand on, and intercede for those who want to make this commitment. God bless you in Jesus' name. Yeah. 